Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's a rainy morning on Lexington Avenue in New York City. The sky brightens slightly as Special Agent Kachopi and Agent Kong park the car. The December sunrise makes little difference to Kachopi, who's been up since 4 a.m. working this case. Just after 7.30, they enter the luxury apartment building, situated a mere three blocks from Central Park. The agents flash their badges at the doorman and take the elevator to the penthouse. They're here to catch a thief. The two young agents are surprised to find the man waiting at the penthouse door. Though he wears a pale blue bathrobe, he doesn't look like a man who's been up late partying. In fact, with his silver hair and wrinkles, he doesn't look like a man who's ever up late partying. Surprisingly, He's smooth and collected, and simply nods when the officials ask if he knows why they're here. He's been betrayed by his own sons. After a short chat, Agents Kachopi and Kong allow the thief to dress. He chooses expensive clothing from the penthouse closet and agrees to go into the FBI's offices for questioning. The agent pulls out his handcuffs and tells the man to extend his arms. As the cold metal manacles click around Bernie Madoff's wrists, $64.8 billion vanish forever. Much of it will never be returned, because most of that money, money in retirement accounts, charity endowments, family fortunes, never existed in the first place. It was, to quote Madoff, just one big lie. Welcome to Con Artists, a podcast original. I'm Alastair Murden. Every week, we peel back the layers of history's greatest deceptions and tell the stories of the hustlers, swindlers, and fraudsters that orchestrated them. I'll dive into their psychology, break down their tricks, and explain why anyone might fall for a con. Con Artist seeks to explore cons from all angles. The perpetrator, the victim, the world they lived in, 
and the thing that forced them to fall or be fooled. In our first episode, we'll cover the upbringing and early influences of our fraudster. We'll understand what experiences shaped their mindset and the historical context that informed their ability to perpetrate their cons. In part two, we'll watch the wheels come off their scheme as their victims recognize the lie. We'll detail how our subject was eventually caught, the fallout, and where they are today. Today, we're beginning the story of Bernie Madoff, architect of the world's biggest known Ponzi scheme. In part one of our investigation, we'll dive into the life of Bernie Madoff and try to understand why a man already inundated with incredible wealth would decide to orchestrate history's largest financial scam. Next week, in part two, we'll follow the SEC's near misses in a decade-long game of cat and mouse and the catalyst that finally brought Madoff down. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. From the 1980s through 2008, having an investment account with Bernie Madoff was either a much sought-after privilege, an upper-crust status symbol, or something you were completely in the dark about. But everything about these investments, everything Madoff had created, was a complete lie. His downfall left many trusting clients destitute and the world completely stunned at the magnitude of his deception. He stole from celebrities, billionaire investors, Holocaust survivors, athletes, and team owners. He stole from individuals and charities, retirement funds and nest eggs. He stole from his friends. He stole from his family. The web of deceit was so complex that a significant portion of those affected were shocked to learn that they were de facto clients of Madoff's. As many as 37,000 people felt the devastating fallout of Madoff's demise. It was truly the biggest financial scandal in world history. His modus operandi was a fairly standard Ponzi scheme. Named for conman Charles Ponzi, a Ponzi scheme is a redistribution of wealth hiding behind a fake investment scheme. It takes money from new investors and hands it to old ones, meaning that the only way to pay the old investors is to find more and more people to buy into the fraudulent system. Without a steady stream of new blood, the entire operation goes up in flames. It is a system always on the verge of disaster, and it is completely illegal. But he didn't just use this Ponzi scheme to prey on Americans. Madoff stretched his claws to Europe, South America, even Africa. By 2008, Madoff claimed he had $68.4 billion in assets under management. And yet, for decades, Madoff was known as a genius, called magnetic and reassuring by those who bragged about him at the country clubs and charity galas. They likened him to his personal symbol, the bull, as in bull market. 
Madoff decorated his office with bulls to match. This perfectly crafted image is what allowed Madoff to thrive. His trademark, charismatic presence and a manufactured mystique shrouded him behind an exalted reputation. He was immensely wealthy. He was of high taste. He rarely met with clients, but the ones that did meet him assured potential customers that investing with Bernie Madoff was the closest thing to a surefire bet Wall Street could offer. A con artist operates on what people believe about them more than anything else, and Bernie Madoff was tinkering with his public image as soon as he could do business. Madoff was born April 29, 1938, in Queens, New York. Bernie's father, Ralph, ran a sporting goods store for most of his childhood. But in the 1950s, the store went out of business, leaving the family in dire straits. This failure burned itself in Bernie's mind. He did not, under any circumstance, want to ever fail his family in such a way. He would do whatever it took to avoid the pangs of unstable economic security and would cultivate a life that made failure impossible. It was this obsessive quest for stability that instigated his relentless pursuit of wealth, but it was also why he fell in love at such a young age. At 16, Bernie met 13-year-old Ruth Alpern. He was a sun-kissed Boy Scout and lifeguard, she a bubbly, low-rent Goldie Horn. They married five years later in 1959, when he was at Hofstra and she was at Queen's College. Almost immediately, Madoff turned his attention toward achieving the type of success that would place him among the American economic elite. A few weeks after the wedding, while still a college senior, he filed the papers to open Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, aka BLMIS. Like most 20-somethings who start their own business, Madoff relied on friends and family to get off the ground. Luckily for him, Madoff's new father-in-law, Saul Alpern, had his own accounting firm and began referring his clients, friends and family members to Madoff. Alpern even gave Madoff a desk in his firm's office. Somewhat ironically, Madoff's first and most important goal was to gain and build the trust of his clients. It came naturally to him, even at such a young age. He was charismatic, driven, outgoing and dedicated to making everyone around him as rich as possible. Unfortunately, it was this very penchant for trust that would ultimately push him to betray the tens of thousands of people that relied on him. Madoff set about investing with a strategy called riskless arbitrage, which involved buying a stock at one price while having already locked in a sale of that same stock at a higher price. He was able to buy and sell the same stock simultaneously thanks to the fact that, at the time, most major cities had their own stock market. According to financial journalist Diana Henriquez, it's a rule in investment advising to only recommend suitable investments. Suitability is determined by an investor's willingness and ability, personal circumstances, to take on a certain level of risk. This rule is legally enforced by government regulatory agencies, 
like the Securities and Exchange Commission. In the early 60s, Madoff ignored the practice of suitability and put his clients' investments into risky, speculative, new-issue stock, whether or not they'd be able to handle that amount of risk. Madoff knew this was wrong, and knew it was illegal. He did it anyway. His disregard netted Madoff Securities almost $30,000 in cash by 1962, after just over two years in business. That's a little over a quarter million dollars today. But in May 1962, the market crashed. And just like that, almost all of Madoff's clients suffered serious losses. This put Bernie at a crossroads that he would face several times in his life. A junction between his pride and the truth. But, as it did time and again, Madoff's ambition and persuasive arrogance knew that if he wanted to reach his goals, admitting failure was not an option. So he took the cash he had on hand and bought back his clients' stocks at the price they'd invested, effectively erasing the losses. Because he was trading in the little-known, little-regulated OTC market, none of the clients were any the wiser. They still had their money and kept their investments and good faith in Bernie Madoff. Whether he knew it or not, Madoff was laying out the groundwork for what social psychologist Maria Konnikova identifies as the eight steps of the successful con. The first of these steps is finding a victim. Madoff quickly realized that as long as his clients got their money back, they weren't liable to ask too many questions. The pursuit of money left many to be easily manipulated. But this manipulation would have to wait as Bernie's quick fix gave rise to a secondary problem. While he had erased his clients' losses, thereby maintaining their trust, he'd done it at the expense of all his money. There was no way for him to continue his business and save face. Except there was. Bernie had married rich, and with that came privilege. He leveraged his close relationship with his father-in-law, Saul Alpern, to secure a loan to the tune of $30,000. According to Madoff, Alpern loaned him the money, and Madoff repaid him before the end of 1964. At this point, it seems that at just 26 years old, Bernie Madoff had perfected his ability to gain people's trust. He'd broken the law, deceived his clients, taken advantage of a family member, and come out all the richer. Despite escaping this early scare, Madoff still felt as though he had a long road ahead of him. Because he dealt in smaller markets with smaller clients, the who's who of Wall Street still gave him the cold shoulder. Madoff himself admitted to journalist Steve Fishman that this treatment infuriated him, as it only seemed to remind him that he was an outcast. Whatever life was like among the big wigs of Wall Street, Bernie wanted it, and he would do whatever it took to get there. After his father-in-law bailed him out of a criminal stock trading failure in 1962, it appears Bernie Madoff went legitimate. We say appears because it's unclear exactly when Madoff's Ponzi scheme began. 
both the FBI and his associate Frank DePascali Jr. believed that the fraud started by the late 1970s. However, no one has definitively proven this accusation, so for this time period, we have to take the standby of innocent until proven guilty. But even if he wasn't engaging in crime outright, he spent the next decade setting the stage for the greatest financial fraud in history. Through the 1960s and 70s, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities grew into a robust but still small broker-dealer business, engaging in actual, legitimate market-making and proprietary trading. Each of these was a separate, legal arm within the same company. BLMIS was soon considered a major market maker in OTC stocks and then on the New York Stock Exchange. According to Fraud Magazine, Madoff's firm was sometimes responsible for a whopping 10% of stock volume traded in a single day. But it wasn't as if 10% of investors were working directly with Madoff. He engaged in payment for order flow. This is a somewhat controversial practice where a small brokerage firm directs their client's orders to a third party to execute the trade, often without the client's knowledge. The third party, in this case, Madoff, then paid the smaller brokerage firm a fee for directing business to them, the standard fee being a penny per share. This allowed BLMIS to execute large orders on the stock market and to quickly expand. This only accelerated with the arrival of Peter Madoff, Bernie's little brother. After joining the firm in June 1969, Peter Madoff helped create groundbreaking computer trading systems instrumental to the firm's success. Madoff Securities was always at the forefront of technological innovation on Wall Street, and that's part of how Bernie's Ponzi scheme was able to thrive. According to social psychologist Maria Konnikova, cons thrive in terms of transition and fast change when new things are happening and the old ways of looking at the world no longer suffice. And in the advent of the computer age, the Madoffs were right in the middle of perhaps the biggest cultural transition the world has ever seen. Wall Street's brand new computer systems were ripe for deceit, abuse and misunderstanding. But at first, they actually bolstered the Madoff family's reputation. BLMIS systems were soon licensed to other market makers and financial companies, including NASDAQ. Throughout their careers, the Madoffs remained at the forefront of the push for automated trading. Combining these technologies with Madoff's innovative trading styles erupted the amount of order flow from Madoff's business on the New York Stock Exchange. Financial gurus, banks, business owners and investors alike all started to turn their heads and look seriously at Bernie Madoff. He finally had the attention of Wall Street's upper crust and he thrived as he socialized at country clubs and fancy restaurants. Madoff was just breaching his 40s and he had already cultivated a fortune and an ever-improving reputation. Which brings up an incredibly perplexing and troubling question. If Madoff had already achieved this great success, then why would he risk it on such a massive and intentional fraud? 
Why threaten the economic stability of thousands of people? What could have possibly caused a man who seemingly achieved the American dream to commit one of the century's biggest crimes? It is a terrifying question, one that eats at the fibers of our humanity and forces us to reassess our understanding of power. We'll try and dissect this question and the intriguing circumstances behind the beginning of Madoff's Ponzi scheme after this. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now back to the story. The unusual and seemingly innovative tactics that Bernie Madoff started to employ in the late 1960s earned him a sterling reputation on Wall Street. This had inadvertently achieved the second step of a successful con, building rapport. By associating with the elite, Madoff had built himself a wide-ranging network of wealthy individuals primed to become victims. But more immediately, it helped him to reel in his four wealthiest direct investors. Dubbed the Big Four by many, including Madoff himself, these four men, knowingly or unknowingly, enabled Madoff to transform into the corrupt powerhouse he became. The first of the four was Jeffrey Pickhauer. Pickhauer was a lawyer and tax accountant with an Ivy League education and a penchant for aggressive investment. He was also Michael Bienes' brother-in-law. Alongside Pickhauer, there was Carl Shapiro, the founder of Kay Windsor Inc., one of the biggest women's clothing manufacturers in the country at the time. After meeting through a mutual friend, Shapiro was attracted to Madoff's ability to execute arbitrage trades in mere days instead of weeks. Third, there was Norman Levy, a real estate tycoon who met Madoff through Saul Alpern's accounting firm. The last of the big four, and perhaps the most influential to the Ponzi scheme, was Stanley Chase. A knitwear millionaire, Chase eventually set up nearly 50 different Madoff accounts, starting with his own investments and trusts for family members. Then, in 1970, he established the Lambeth Fund, officially the first of many Madoff feeder funds. Similar to a shell corporation, the feeder funds were basically made-up entities to hide Bernie Madoff. Lambeth Fund investors were told that Stanley Chase would manage their assets, providing annual returns. However, Chase merely handed the money to Bernie Madoff and collected his percentage of fees skimmed off returns. 
Investors in the Lambeth Fund, as well as in Chase's later Popham and Brighton funds, had no clue they were investing with Madoff. Even if Madoff was investing legitimately in the 1970s, Stanley Chase was reeling in their clients with a lie. Whether or not the Big Four knew about the Ponzi scheme is a point of hot contention. Many analysts believe that there was no possible way the four investors would not have known something was happening. But whether or not they actively took a role in pushing Madoff's company to commit financial fraud remains up in the air. What they did for sure was start Madoff rolling down a hill of riches, and before they knew it, his dealings and quest for wealth would become an unstoppable avalanche. They also solidified Madoff's place among some of the wealthiest men in the country. As such, the demand to perform was greater than ever. Mistakes and poor investment decisions were not tolerated, and if Madoff wanted to keep his status, he damn well better give the best returns money can buy. But dealing with larger and larger accounts did little to hamper Madoff's output, who continued to make money for his clients and attract more and more attention. When Madoff's father-in-law, Saul Alpern, retired in 1974, two accountants named Frank Avellino and Michael Bienes took over the firm's accounting and wanted in on whatever Bernie Madoff was doing to earn so much money. According to Bienes, Madoff promised them a whopping 20% return on their investments and was happy to take their clients' money too, as long as it was kept hush-hush. Like Stanley Chase, Avellino and Bienes soon had several clients who thought they were investing with them, but were actually investing with Madoff. The two accountants promised their investors a rate of anywhere from 13.5 to 20%. They kept the remaining 3 to 5% of Madoff's returns for themselves. Neither Avellino nor Bienes was registered as a stockbroker or an investment advisor, so they called the money they took from their clients loans to cover up the illegal scheme. With his growing pool of investors and successful broker-dealer firm, Madoff's star only continued to rise. By 1979, a 41-year-old Madoff became a member of the National Association of Securities Dealers, or the NASD committee, that worked to link all the different regional stock exchanges electronically and of the Cincinnati Stock Exchange, which was notable for only trading electronically. It was official. By the 1980s, Bernie Madoff was a major player in the stock market. With the success came perks, including a Montauk Beach House in 1979, a London office in 1983, and a flashy new daily commute via Cessna seaplane. In 1985, Madoff's firm had a net worth of over $18 million, more than triple what he had just two years prior. Taking advantage of the growth, Madoff paid himself $6 million over the course of 1985, according to a 1986 issue of Financial World magazine. His budding reputation and taste for expensive purchases also helped him achieve step three and four of Maria Konnikova's guidelines for a successful con. Set up an enviable situation and let your victims know how they could be a part of it. 
the house, the plane, the fancy offices, Madoff never kept these riches a secret, and it allowed the public to see his success firsthand. But he dangled these items especially as an advertisement. Here are the riches that can be yours if only you invest with Bernie Madoff. But the cultivation of his reputation did not stop with displays of wealth. In 1985, Madoff was elected to the NASD's Board of Governors and served four consecutive terms. As a former NASD committee member told PBS, Bernie's strategy was to get actively involved in all aspects of the industry. He had a much bigger presence than the size of his firm would naturally warrant. This was another important step in setting up his con, a tactic fellow con artist Fred DeMera termed papering, i.e. laying a paper trail of legitimacy. Papering helps a con artist become familiar to their victim before the con begins and plants the seeds of trust. It's often done through creating a fake or real connection to a legitimate institution, such as a college or charity, or in Madoff's case, the SEC and the NASD. Papering can include referrals from other seemingly trustworthy individuals, like the friends, family and investment managers who referred many of Madoff's victims to him. According to Maria Konnikova, papering can be as simple as exchanging hellos with a stranger on the street or frequenting the same coffee shop. Konnikova notes that seeing someone even once makes us more likely to agree to help them or talk to them later on. Continuing to build up local familiarity and legitimacy, in 1987, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities moved into the 18th and 19th floor of Manhattan's Lipstick Building, named such for its architecture, not its residence. It was a classy place, worthy of a firm boasting $5 billion in accounts. That June, Mark Madoff, Bernie's elder son, got his brokerage license to work for the firm full-time. And stock prices had been on the up-and-up for months. Everything was coming up roses. Until October 19, 1987, a.k.a. Black Monday. With no clear cause, the stock market crashed 22% in a single day, putting Wall Street in a panic. Everyone was losing millions, if not billions, of dollars. However, with their top-notch futuristic computer systems, Madoff Securities not only continued to execute trades at high volume, it made money. At least, it made money according to Mike Engler, a Minneapolis-based stockbroker who'd been bringing investors to Madoff since the early 70s. Wall Street regulators also praised Madoff Securities and Peter Madoff for their money-saving technological innovation. But behind the scenes, it was more complicated. The 1987 crash rocked investors' confidence, and they began withdrawing their cash. However, Madoff claimed he didn't have the money for them to withdraw. His complex investing schemes had left his hands and his money tied up. Madoff himself alluded to an idea that his bigger clients had made long-term investment deals, telling reporter Diana Henriquez that, in the late 1980s, he was hung out to dry. This cash bind put on the pressure to deliver. Madoff 
who deeply cared for his reputation and the trust he had spent over 20 years cultivating, felt an immense pressure to avoid failure at all cost. Once again, Madoff was placed between the pulling fibers of pride and truth. It was an internal war that would decide the fate of thousands as Madoff, true to form, chose pride once more. If he couldn't pay out his investors, everything he'd built over almost three decades was worthless. His carefully crafted reputation would go down the drain just as fast as the market had. But he'd gotten out of trouble like this before, and just like in 1962, Madoff realized a quick loan and a quick lie would solve all of his troubles. This time, he owed more money than anyone could reasonably ask their father-in-law for. But this time, he had access to other accounts. He could borrow a little here, a little there, and put it back later. Like the old idiom, he'd rob Peter to pay Paul. And no one would be the wiser. If the Ponzi scheme hadn't started by now, it was about to. Coming up, we'll look at how Bernie Madoff kept the scheme under wraps for decades and the people who helped him get away with it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. From a crackly phone in North Carolina, an elderly but lucid Bernie Madoff told journalist Steve Fishman, I just allowed myself to be talked into something and that's my fault. I thought I could extricate myself after a period of time. This cryptic statement that shrouded the origins of the world's greatest financial fraud was echoed in an answer Madoff gave to Diana Henriquez when he told her that he couldn't remember when he officially decided to commit fraud. These statements not only open up the possibility that Madoff was not the sole architect of the Ponzi scheme, but also shine a light on the chilling reality that he felt little to no remorse for his part in ruining so many people's lives. He almost talks about it as though it was something that just happened, as though it were inevitable and completely out of his control. We can glean from these words that Madoff did not think much of when he started the Ponzi scheme, but it seems likely he did so in response to the 1987 crash. This is supported by the criminal charges brought against him by the U.S. District Attorneys in the Southern District of New York, which say he was operating the scam by at least the 1980s. According to those same charges, 
Madoff promised the people he defrauded that he'd invest in safe blue-chip stocks from the Standard & Poor's 100 index. For reference, the S&P 100 is the 100 most popular and profitable stocks, full of well-known companies like McDonald's, Wells Fargo, Johnson & Johnson, and Goldman Sachs. Madoff was essentially promising investments in stocks that were historically good bets. Good enough that he guaranteed consistent returns of around 10% annually, regardless of what happened to the market. That should have been an immediate red flag. But here, he played on his reputation. Social psychologists John French and Bertram Raven have theorized that there are five bases from which we derive power. From the ability to reward someone, the ability to punish them, being in a position of authority, having obvious expertise, and associating with someone desirable. By the early 1990s, it appears Madoff had all five. He was on the NASD Board of Governors, giving him authority, and he appeared to be a highly successful financial wizard with a booming business and a savant understanding of the market. Through his feeder funds, there were outside firms made up of individual accounts that funneled their money into Madoff's master fund. Madoff was meeting the rich and influential. He gained power by association, what Raven and French call referent power. This power only grew as Bernie and Ruth became active not only on the ski slopes of Aspen and the beaches of South Florida, but in New York's Jewish philanthropy circles. In essence, it was risky to question Bernie Madoff, as confusing or dubious as his investment scheme may have seemed, thus allowing Madoff to essentially do whatever he wanted. What he did was simply deposit his investors' money into a bank account, as any of the investors who trusted him could easily do for themselves. Then, the cover-up began. What differentiated Madoff's scam from a typical Ponzi is that he didn't give his early top-level investors their returns in cash, but instead sent them fake account statements with fake trading records in the mail. This was an ingenious move because, thanks to the legitimate stock trading business he was hiding behind, Madoff had ample access to real information about stock performance. Since the statements were delayed by the mail, he could make trades that appeared to be genius predictions, when really, he was just picking the stocks that had performed well in hindsight. By revealing these fake trades, Madoff was taking step five in Konnikova's successful con, showing off the profits. Madoff was able to give his clients a taste for their riches without actually giving them any money. This made his clients believe they had a small taste of everything they were promised. Therefore, they bought in and convinced their friends to buy in. What's more, as the scheme grew, many of his investors never even saw these fake account statements. As investors of funds made up of funds, they'd receive a statement from the manager who had invested with Madoff, essentially second-hand news. The variety of feeder funds made it even easier for Bernie Madoff to both keep his scheme in the dark and recruit new investors.
Then, in 1990, Bernie Madoff was named a non-executive NASDAQ chairman. The legitimate arm of his firm was bringing in around $100 million in annual profits in the early 90s and garnering impressive bonuses for the 120-odd employees. On top of all this, Madoff's second son, Andrew, had recently joined Madoff Securities as a broker, reinforcing their image as a family business. But it was a family divided. While Bernie and his brother Peter were running the Ponzi scheme, Bernie's sons, Mark and Andrew, and Peter's daughter, Shana, who joined in 1995 as a compliance attorney, claimed they had no idea their parents were criminals and never faced criminal charges. Still, the machine rolled along regardless of their participation. That's the tricky thing about a Ponzi scheme. It is virtually impossible to close the loop. It has to grow no matter the cost. This was especially prudent if a client like Stanley Chase called. Chase would tell Bernie Madoff's right-hand conman, Frank DiPascali, that his new client was looking forward to the 16% return they were promised by the end of the month. DiPascali was a point of contact for investors, and he didn't just tell lies, he wrote them. DiPascali created fake account statements and falsified ledgers, blotters, clearinghouse forms and trade confirmations. But it was Annette Bongiorno, DiPascali's former babysitter and the woman that got him a job with Madoff, that would handle a client like Chase firsthand. She would analyze the market days later and choose an appropriate stock to match the 16% return they had promised Chase. This was the thing about analyzing the market after the fact. If Bernie Madoff decided you were to get a 10% return, then that's what you'd get. Stock market be damned. Then, it was up to Daniel Bonventure, BLMIS's Director of Operations, to complete the forgery. Bonventure was an accountant by trade, but a forger by expertise. According to his criminal charges, he once led Madoff to the window on the 17th floor where he had Madoff hold up his fake clearinghouse report next to a real one. Both men remarked on how great the forgery was. And then the forged document was off to Stanley Chase to show his client's proof that his money was in great hands with the well-respected Madoff. However, a customer like Chase, one of the firm's most important clients, might do something in response to the return he'd received. He'd call Bongiorno, assuring her there must be a mix-up. He had been promised an 18% return, not a 16% one. Bongiorno would laugh, of course, Mr. Chase, I must have sent you the wrong account. Then it was back to the markets, matching the correct stock purchase on the correct date to yield an 18% return. This was the type of control Madoff had. He could literally decide who made what at any time. And it allowed him to ask for more and more money from his trusting clients. This was step six in the road to a successful con. Always ask for more. Step seven, take the money. Madoff took as much as he wanted. He was essentially running an illegal bank account, 
managed meticulously by Joanne Krupe, who assured all activity went under the radar. The final step of Maria Konnikova's successful con, step eight, is to run. Madoff never ran, but he certainly had an efficient method of hiding. Even so, the system was bound to leave some sort of trail. Enough of a trail that two computer programmers who worked for Madoff, Jerome O'Hara and George Perez, quickly caught on when they found themselves coding SEC workarounds. They stormed into Madoff's pristine, sleek office and demanded to know what was going on. Madoff did not flinch. He turned to Di Pascali and told him to explain the situation and to make sure the two men understood that if they stayed on, he would make it very much worth their troubles. The money was too good. O'Hara and Perez were in, writing code that made the scam faster, smoother, and much, much bigger. All Madoff's conspirators had two things in common. They spent most, if not all, of their careers working at BLMIS, and they personally committed tax evasion. And as the 90s rolled on, they all had one more thing in common. They were getting rich. The richer they got, the bigger the machine grew, until, as an incident with the SEC in 1992 showed, it was nearly unstoppable. For nearly a decade, from 1983 to 1992, Avelino and Bienes had dropped all pretense of accounting and moved their entire business to investment management, which was really just funneling money to Madoff. That is, until one of their clients, a California investment advisor, decided to spread the wealth and began publicizing their fund to clients on his own. This went directly against Avelino and Bienes' directive from Madoff to keep the investment advisory under wraps. All three men were horrified. Avelino and Bienes of losing their money machine and Madoff of being caught red-handed. These fears manifested when, in June of 1992, the SEC received a tip from two diligent investors who had looked into the Avellino and Bienes King Arthur account and found that, one, the promised returns of up to 20% seemed excessive for an investment billed as no risk, and two, the fund was not taking new investors, but only allowing friends and family in on the deal. By July, Avelino and Bienes were being interrogated by the SEC on suspicion of running a Ponzi scheme. In their investigation, the SEC discovered over 3,000 people had investments totaling over $400 million with Avelino and Bienes, despite the fact that neither accountant was registered as an investment advisor. Worse, Avelino and Bienes couldn't turn over the money because they'd given it all to Bernie Madoff. On July 9th, 1992, SEC investigators showed up at the BLMIS office. It was a small team on the case, just three members of the broker-dealer enforcement group, two of who were fresh out of college. 
They were greeted by Bernie Madoff, who spent the meeting slinging complex financial jargon that went in one regulator's ear and out the other. Here, Madoff was taking a gamble on the regulator's egos. The SEC regulators were mostly lawyers, not stock traders, so they wouldn't know the business as well as Madoff. But being well-educated people who likely consider themselves smarter than average, they'd be less likely to ask questions about Madoff's complex schemes and instead boost their pride by pretending to understand it. It was a tactic he'd been perfecting with his investors. In fact, Michael Bienes himself didn't understand what Madoff was doing with the money. He later told PBS it was bonds and stocks and blah, 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 blah. Reflecting on the visit, one of the investigators said, Madoff was a pioneer in the industry. He really used, you know, technology to bring trading to the next level. When I walked out of there, it was more along the lines of, wow, this guy is a third market guy that does X percent of the volume on the exchange. This is where I actually learned about third market. I didn't even know the so-called term that that's what it was called. Clearly, the investigators were out of their depth. The ins and outs of Wall Street are tricky for any layman to understand. And Madoff used that fact to fool his victims and the SEC again and again. And it helped that he had the paperwork to back it up. As part of the investigation, Madoff produced years of complicated trading records across several accounts. Of course, most of the documents had been forged by Frank Di Pascali that same week. The SEC regulators left the Lipstick Building convinced of one thing. Madoff Securities was legitimate. Bernie's gamble had paid off. But the win came with a catch. The SEC still wanted to shut down Avellino and Bienes. And shutting the firm down meant returning all of their clients' investments. Madoff was served with a court order to hand over a cool $400 million. Here's the kicker. Most of that money didn't exist. It was just numbers on paper like the rest of the Ponzi. We don't know how much money Madoff had in liquid assets at this time, but by his own account, he certainly didn't have $400 million. However, he knew people who did. He squeezed three of the big four investors, Carl Shapiro, Jeffrey Pickauer, and Norman Levy to increase their investments with him. And they did so without question. So in 1992, $400 million of stolen cash went back to the people who'd invested with Madoff through Avellino and Bienes for all of five minutes. In the fallout, Madoff offered to open up accounts for the former Avellino and Bienes investors directly. He appeared sympathetic, understanding they had lost a great investment opportunity. But really, he just wanted that $400 million back. Not only did Madoff escape the SEC unscathed, he came away with thousands of new direct investors. Brimming with confidence, Madoff expanded the Ponzi scheme later that same year in 1992. He invested in new IBM computers just for updating the fake accounts 
and leased out the 17th floor of the Lipstick Building. With his main office on the 18th and 19th floors, Madoff was literally committing fraud right underneath everyone's noses. Now sequestered on the 17th floor, Di Pascali, O'Hara and Perez designed computer programs that would update the fake accounts with backdated trades, create routine clearinghouse forms to match and, most ostentatiously, fake real-time stock trades. This stroke of criminal genius appeared to be the same computer program used by the legitimate traders on the upper floors, where they could use the internet to buy or sell stock within a customer's account. O'Hara could theoretically sit at his desk with a customer or regulator to make a trade and receive real-time confirmation messages from Perez, who would be working from a connected computer in a back room. They graduated from fake paperwork to performance art. But for Harry Markopoulos, it was a different story. He didn't see art when he looked at Madoff's investment strategy. He saw something much more sinister. By 1999, Bernard L. Madoff's securities and investments was getting a lot of attention and making an incredible amount of money. But success breeds competition and Boston-based Rampart Investments wanted to compete. After hearing about Madoff, the firm's partner's task portfolio manager, Harry Markopoulos, with the reverse engineering a fund that would offer similarly high returns with similarly low volatility. In February 2000, Markopoulos got his hands on Madoff's return records and read Madoff's strategy. In about five minutes, it hit him like a brick. The numbers he was looking at weren't right. They couldn't be right. This was fraud. Fraud on an absolutely unbelievable scale. As a veteran of the Army Reserves and Catholic School, Marco Polis would not stand for rule breakers. He continued reading. Fifteen minutes later, he saw the truth not fraud, a Ponzi scheme. A scandal that would impact thousands of people and hundreds of millions of dollars. Within four hours, he had mathematically proven the crime. But Bernie Madoff was so influential and well-protected that it would take Marco Polis almost nine years to bring him down. Thanks for listening to Con Artists. We'll be back next week with part two of Bernie Madoff as Harry Markopoulos goes after Madoff and Madoff goes after million-dollar yachts. We'll look at the tactics Madoff and his co-conspirators used to fool the SEC for another decade and the mere coincidence that finally brought him down. You can find more episodes of Con Artists as well as other podcast originals on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Con Artist was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. 
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Marler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Con Artists was written by Maggie Admire. I'm Alastair Murden.